0: We're so grateful for all the gifts and treasures you have given us, family, friends, the opportunity and freedom to come and hear your word. We ask that we be worthy, that we be servants, that we be humble, that our minds be open to your spirit. We ask this in thy name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, isn't that just, you know, when we do the law court forum of prayer, we don't have a single lawyer in the house. Now that we're talking about the sons of the prophets, we've got two judges. All right. We come now to the third of our four sessions talking about Israelite and Judean spiritualities to the time of Jesus and This is something you probably are familiar about, but didn't know about it. What we're talking about is a movement that occurred for a relatively brief time in the history of Israel, but which looms very large, both in terms of uh, the religion of Israel and Judea, and also in terms of its later legacy for Christianity. And that is the movement of the Sons of the Prophets, the B'nai Hanavi'im. And what I directed you to do was to read 2 Kings chapter 2. How many people were able to do, read 2 Kings chapter 2? Okay.
0: I did 1 Kings.
1: No, we're in the, that's the wrong Kings. Second Kings, chapter two. Would someone like to start reading that for us, please? Again, please wait for the microphone to come to. You. Yeah, Rich, you're going to get some exercise this morning. Who wants to read? Who wants to read? Nobody wants to read.
0: Judge, yeah, I'll be glad <laughs> to. I need the glasses. <laughs> Second Kings verse.
1: Chapter 2, starting at the first verse. We're looking at the whole chapter. You need not read the whole chapter. You can pass that off to someone else if you'd like. Two
0: Two,
1: two. Two Kings 2.
0: Now when I, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Galajo. And Elijah said to Elisha, "Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Elijah said to him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Then Elisha said to him, "Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry land. Verse 9, somebody want
2: to help me? When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elijah, Elijah said, saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha pick, picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho, who were watching, said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha." And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, your servants have 50 able men, Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days, but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jer- Jericho, he said to them, Didn't I tell you not to go? <laughs> <laughs> Healing the water. The people of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then they went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day. According to the word, Elisha had spoken. Keep going? Yep. Okay. (laughs) From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said, talking to me. (laughs) Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there returned to Samaria. Okay. And... uh, That sounds like uh, the movie we've been watching called called the... uh, The Revenant? No, no. Lost. Lost.
1: Okay. And Baldy. Okay. What do we learn about the sons of the prophets from that whole chapter of 2 Kings? what they were persistent yes what do you mean please what do you mean by anointed i mean where where is anointing in that in that passage picking up elijah's cloak okay who did that who picked up elijah's cloak Elisha did, but about the sons of the prophets, not about Elisha. They weren't very trusting. They didn't believe anything. They needed proof. They needed proof. Okay, they weren't very trusting. They stuck together. They stuck together. Thank you. They were a band. They were a group. They were a school. They were a class. Under whose leadership? Elijah, correct. And after Elijah was taken up? Elisha. So they were disciples of master prophets. Okay, what else do we learn from this? What other themes did you find in this? What? The son wanted more. Ah. Than the, than the father, he wanted more power. He wanted to be twice as good. No. No? No, okay. Let me have a double portion of the spirit that is on you. What is Elisha asking for? What is a double portion? Anybody know anything about Israelite inheritance laws? It's the firstborn's portion. In other words, he didn't want twice the power that Elijah had. He wanted a double portion. In other words, he he was asking to be the leader of the B'nai Hanavi'im. To be recognized as the firstborn among them. Okay, other things we learn. So he wasn't actually Elijah's son. He was, one, he was one of his followers. Yes. Because don't forget, it was Elijah was commanded by God, as we'll get from a moment, to to uh, to find Elisha and anoint him as his follower. Okay? Well they did follow. They did follow. Okay, to a certain extent. But they didn't always listen, did they? Okay, what else can you learn from this passage? Uh, it's kind of
0: troublesome at the end. Bigger pardon? It's troublesome to me at the end. Uh, I didn't quite understand the, the whole business
1: with the, uh, with the you know, boys, small boys. Young boys she and the two she bears that came out in the woods and them. mauled them. Cursing people in the name of the Lord. Yeah. Cursing someone in the name of the Lord, one thing we learn from that is you curse someone in the name of the Lord, they're in for trouble. Okay. Now, why did they call him baldy? Why did they call him, when they say, go up bald head, go up bald head, what were they referring to? Just regular mare, p- male pattern baldness? Age? Not Age. A tonsure. A tonsure. The front of the head shaved. Okay. Um, Most scholars think that what this was a mark of the sons of the prophets, that they had an early form of tonsure, like a monastic tonsure, where the front of the head from ear to ear was shaved. So they were mocking his order. They were mocking his prophetic status. Okay, anything else we learned? How did they cross the Jordan? What? Okay. Okay, so what did Elijah do? He rolled up his cloak... Making it into what? Ah! Struck the waters and they divided. They walked through on dry land. Does that remind you of something? Moses, Moses at the Sea of Reeds and the Exodus. And then Elisha does the same thing. That's not accidental here. They are reenacting the Exodus. Why would they be reenacting the Exodus? We'll get to that. Okay, few other points to make. As a group, the sons of the prophets were collected into bands or schools. They were intentional communities, okay? In specific localities, notice that you have Gilgal mentioned, Bethel mentioned, Jericho mentioned, and the other locations, Carmel and Samaria, would all have had their bands of prophets. They were under a master prophet or teacher Elijah or his successor Elisha with specialized instruction. What were they learning from Elijah and Elisha? Would you guess? What? Scripture? Whatever 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 the, the master teacher knew he was imbuing that Okay, well what was the profession of the master? What was it? What was it? What, Who were Elijah and Elisha? What did they do for you know? They were prophets. So what would they be learning about? About prophesying. They were apprentice prophets. Yeah. Would this be similar to the group that did the Dead Sea Scrolls? We'll get to that. Hold that thought. Lovely. Thank you. Okay, they were disciples, they were learning how to become prophets. They shared a communal life. Take a look at 2 Kings 4, 38 to 44. Okay. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his, his lapful of wild gourds. And came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat, but while they were eating the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Beth bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give them to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a 100 men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Does that remind you of anything? Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. The important point is that they shared a common life. They lived together. They ate together together. Wearing a taunt shirt, we already looked at that, go up bald head, possibly with a mark or tattoo on the third eye, all right? Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 35 to 42. 1 Kings 20, 35 to 42. Okay, all right. In other words, he took the bandage from off his eyes, and bingo, he was immediately recognizable as a prophet. Again, some kind of mark, tattoo, or brand, probably on the third eye, may have been part of what distinguished the B'nai Hanavi'im. Okay, so you're talking about people who are rather distinctive. They wore probably plain brown robes with a belt or a rope and had that tonsure and the tattoo so hardly anybody could miss who they were. Why would they distinguish themselves in such a manner? Perhaps because their very presence was meant to be a message. OK. Now, this is not something that just yes. to other Israelites, in this case, to the king of Israel, who would let a very valuable prisoner go. The, yeah, but the sons of the prophets were not teaching other people to be prophets. What do you think they were trying to teach them? What? To follow. To follow whom? Christ. What? Well, no, God. No, 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 no. God. in a way, yes, but not yet. God. To call them back to faithfulness to God. Okay. Yes. Were they Levites? No. There's no indication that they were Levites. Okay. So you could not think of them as priests. Nope. They were lay people. Okay. There was an antecedent for these B'nai hanaviim, the sons of the prophets, in bands of ecstatic prophets. Inaugurated under Samuel, which was much earlier than this. You have to go all the way back to 1 uh, 1 Samuel to find Samuel's bands of prophets. So take a look at 1 Samuel 10, verses 5 and 10. Okay, 1 Samuel 10, verses 5 and 10. i think yes okay it's where samuel is anointing saul to be king over israel and he's giving him certain signs that he has been the one to be king so in verse 5 after that you shall come to give at elohim literally the high place of god where there is a garrison of the philistines and there as soon as you come to the city you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And then if you look at verse 10, um, And when they came to Givah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, that is upon Saul, and he prophesied among them. Now that's a very interesting term, prophesied mitnabe in Hebrew, and we'll begin to get a better idea of what it meant to prophesy in this sense if you look at First Samuel 19:18 through 24. OK. Anybody care to read? Starting in chapter
3: 19.
1: Yes, please wait for the microphone.
3: What, what, which
1: verse now? Chapter 19, yeah. verses 18, 18 through 18. 24. When David
3: had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Najah and stayed there word came to Saul quote David is in Naleth and Ramoth so he sent men to capture him but when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader the spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied too Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? (laughs) Over in Namath, at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Namath at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Nala. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night.
1: This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? And again, your translation is being a bit coy. He lay naked all day prophesying. Okay, so what was prophesying basically going... You know, what, was, what were these people doing? Prophesying. What did, in what did prophesying consist of? What? They're in ecstasy. They're probably doing things like speaking in tongues, dancing, singing shouting, laughing, whatever. In the nude? Well, Saul stripped off his clothes and lay there all day prophesying in the nude. Okay? This was ecstatic frenzy. That's what prophesying means in this case. It's charismatic, ecstatic prophesying. Okay? Why? Probably, oh, probably it involved musical instruments as well. Because remember how the band of prophets met him, they came down from the high place with musical instruments? Music was used to whip up into ecstasy. The purpose is to whip up fervor for Hashem, for the Lord. They were, if you will, holy cheerleaders okay, chanting, singing, dancing, prophesying, frenzied, trying to whip up fervor for the God of Israel. That was what ecstatic prophecy was all about. Now, however, there is something interesting about that. Where did Samuel and the other people get the idea for doing that? Actually, from the Canaanites and the way they worship Baal, because Baal worship. Involved ecstatic prophecy long before Israelites ever thought of doing it. And that's why it's kind of ironic and why there is something of a difference between these ecstatic prophets under Samuel and the B'nai Hanavi'im under Saul. However, there were some still in practice in the time of Elijah. If you look at 1 Kings 18.4, You'll find a brief reference there. 1 Kings eighteen four. if I can flip my page here. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. In other words, this Obadiah, you know, made sure that some of the prophets of the Lord who had been, you know, Jezebel was out to kill them all off, he managed to hide some of them. Now, what is the context for the rise of the movement of B'nai Hanavi'im under Elijah and Elisha? First of all, there was the growing arrogance of the kings. What king in particular uh, was the nemesis of Elijah was he constantly in conflict with very notorious king it was ahab Ahab and King Ahab went and who did he marry? come on y'all Jezebel. Jezebel who was a Phoenician princess and Ahab and Jezebel introduced Baal worship officially into Israel. The kings were seeing themselves increasingly as absolute rulers rather than as viceroys of God. And they were promulgating their own laws without reference to what the Torah had commanded. In other words, they say, I'm the king, I can decree whatever I want to. There was economic injustice running rampant at the time, a growing gap between rich and poor, and exploitation and violence against the poor. There is Ahab's plot to take the vineyard of Naboth, So he has Naboth accused on false charges of blasphemy and murdered so he can seize his vineyard. All at the suggestion of Jezebel. There was the corruption of Israelite religion by pagan practices. Okay, they saw their local Canaanite neighbors doing this, that, and the other at their sanctuaries. They say, hey, that looks pretty cool. Let's do that at our sanctuary of Hashem. But above all, it was the introduction of Baal worship under Ahab and Jezebel that provoked a crisis that led, in effect, to God doing something new in Israel. And this is the birth, really, of the prophetic movement. Now, the pattern and prototype of this is Elijah himself, and if you key text here is 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. This is a very famous passage, but we are going to look at it. 1 Kings 19. Who would like to start reading?
2: Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword.
1: Which prophets did he kill off, by the way? I'm sorry? Which prophets did Elijah kill off? The prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Okay.
2: So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I am no better than than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Orb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, unknown Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and appoint and anoint Elisha, son of Sapheth, from Abel mehathath to succeed you as prophet. Jehu went will put to death any who escape the word of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and, the, and whose mouths have not kissed him.
1: Okay, that's, that's more than enough here. Okay, how many people, you've probably heard that story before, okay? Elijah runs from his life, from Jezebel, runs for his life. He asks God, I, I've had it. I mean, this is talk, we're talking about clergy burnout into the nth degree. Okay. Take my life. I'm done. I've had it. They, you know, and then he goes, and first of all, an angel appears, gives him special food, and in that food, he goes, how long into the wilderness? Forty days. Forty days and forty nights. Remind you of Anybody? It's Moses on top of Mount Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights. Okay? And he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, where Moses received the Torah, and he hides in a cave. He's going back to the same cleft in the rock where God told Moses to hide while his glory passed by. Okay? And God comes to him and says, "Well." What are you doing here? And he gives his complaint. Remember, we talked about the law court form of of prayer. He gives his complaint to God. I'm the only one you got left, and now they're trying to kill me. And God says, okay, go out and stand on the mountain, and I'm about to show you something. And there was the great wind, and the fire, and the earthquake, and God was not there. And then a still, small voice, a murmuring, a mere whisper. And when Elijah hears the sound of near silence, that's when he knows God is present, so he covers his face with his mantle, and he goes and stands outside. And God asks him once again, what are you doing here? I love the way one preacher I once heard put it, and he comes out with the identical lamentable litany, like he's learned nothing from what he's just experienced. And what does God tell him? Go back. Your job's not over. What's more, he's going to anoint three people. Who's he going to anoint? He's going to anoint Hazael to be king over the Syrians of Aram in Damascus. That's a Gentile king. He's going to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshai, one of Ahab's generals, to be king over Israel. In other words, he's going to instigate a coup d'etat. And he's going to anoint Elisha to be his successor. Okay. But what's the final word? God says, I have left 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who have not kissed Baal. What happens with those 7,000 men? What is he saying to Elijah? That's your your recruiting group. They're gonna become the Bnei Hanavi'im, the sons of the prophets. So you're not alone. So we see a number of things here. The return to the desert, okay? City life has just gotten too corrupt, too awful, too pagan, too worldly. And so he runs off to the desert, you know, playing at being a Latter-day Moses, although he doesn't really know what he's asking for. He's going there to reenact the Exodus again, to reenact the stand at Sinai, and he practices the desert disciplines. This is going to be very important, not so much in Judaism, but certainly in later Christian monasticism, solitude, silence, and prayer. Solitude, silence, prayer. So all that was handed down to Moses. This is going on with Elijah, okay? But also you have the birth of the concept that will loom large, especially in Isaiah, of the saving remnant. That there will be a remnant of Israel that will be redeemed because they have remained faithful to the covenant. Okay. But at the same time, there's political engagement. I'm not going to go into the passage in detail, but in Second Kings chapter 9 verses 1 through 13, not under Elijah but under Elisha, he sends one of the Bene Hanaviim to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. So what's the mission of the B'nai Hanavi'im? This is extremely important. The first is to renew Israel's covenant with God. To renew Israel's covenant with God. The second is to recall Israel to covenant faithfulness. In other words, you're not merely renewing the covenant, you're saying return, repent. And to re-pristinate Israelite religious life. Uh, That term is a little bit odd, but, you know, what they had is they had in mind an idea of what the pure religion of Israel looked like, and it looked like the desert. And therefore, you're going to strip it away of all of the accretions uh, that had come to clutter the landscape, especially if there were, you know, things that had been imported from foreign cults. So you're going to, in a sense, re-pristinate the religion of Israel. Now, why is this stuff important? Because this did leave a legacy. First, it influenced later prophets, but no one more than Hosea, and this passage I do want to look at. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. No takers? That's all right, I'll do it. Oh, okay. Hosea, chapter 2, verses 14 to 23.
4: Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Akor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God.
1: Okay. First of all, a few things about translations here. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. In Hebrew, it's Ishi. Ishi. My man, as it were. Okay? And no longer will you call me Ba'ali. That's the one that's translated my master, my Ba'al. Because the word Ba'al certainly does mean the Canaanite God, but it's also the Hebrew word for husband. Okay? In other words, he's saying you will no longer use the word ba'al even to describe the marriage relationship between God and Israel. Okay? For I will remove the names of the ba'als from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. Uh, Second thing is, again, Hosea had originally taken as his wife... Gomer Bat Divlayim, who was probably a cult prostitute of Baalism, and had a few kids. The firstborn, which was probably Hosea's, was named Jezreel after the place where Jehu did destroy the house of Ahab. However, Jehu had not done everything the Lord had wanted, so basically, what uh, God was saying through Hosea is, I'm about to visit the house of Jehu and essentially visit on them a retribution for the bloodshed of Jezreel because he did it for personal power and not for the Lord. Uh, Then he had a son whose name was Lo-Ami, not my people, to say to the children of Israel, You are not my people, I am not your God. Uh, Actually, no, that was the last one. The middle child was the daughter, Lo-Ruhamah, not pitied. Okay, and what he's saying is he's going to reverse the names. That the person who, the daughter who was called not pitied, Lo-Ruhamah, is going to be called Ruhamah, loved, pitied. And lo Ami. Not my my people is going to be called my people, Ami, and the covenant will be renewed. Do you see this whole thing, though, about drawing Israel back to the desert, drawing her back to the days of covenant faithfulness? This is the hallmark of the sons of the prophets. This is really the hallmark of the sons of the prophets, and Hosea may very well have come from their ranks. On the other hand, if you look at Amos, Amos 7, 14 to 15, and I'll just read this because we're running short on time. Then uh, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. <coughs> because Amos came from the southern kingdom of Judah, but was prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. In other words, I wasn't a prophet when I was in Judah nor did I belong to the B'nai Hanavi'im movement. But I was a herdsman and a dressamore of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. And then he gives Amaziah the what for. Now hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. And your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourselves shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from the land. Don't look for good news in Amos. Okay? Don't look for good news in Amos. But you see, the point is, he specifically declined, you know, you know, said, I'm not a B'nai, from the B'nai Hanavi'im. Now, you asked about the Dead Sea Scrolls sect. The Essenes were certainly inspired by the example of Elijah, Elisha, and the B'nai Hanavi'im. First of all, the term Essenes, in the Greek Esaioi, was a Hellenization of the term Hasidim, the pious ones. This was a movement that was a reaction against the Hellenization of Judean society uh, during the intertestamental period. Okay? So they split with official Judaism, especially over the Hellenization of of Judean life. The importation of Greek culture and even Greek worship even by the official priests. To give you an idea of just how far apostasy had gone in Judea, the priests themselves practiced a primitive form of plastic surgery to cover up their circumcision so they could compete nude in, the, in, the, in, 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 game, in athletic games. And also, they stayed split because the Maccabees who came out of the Hasidim gave birth to the Hasmonean dynasty, they were a cadet branch of the priesthood. They were not of the Tzadokite line that claimed the high priesthood. And so when they became high priests, even though the, 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 the Tzadokite high priests had apostatized, this was just not done. You didn't have this younger branch, this offshoot, claiming the high priesthood. Then they went further, and they claimed the kingship. And they became the kings, the Hasmonean kings. And to the the Hasidim, this was anathema, because who was the only legitimate king of Israel? David, or one of his line. So this was double. The Pharisaic movement actually grew out of the Hasidim, okay? and they influenced John the Baptist, probably influenced John the Baptist. Not Jesus directly, but certainly John the Baptist. And the other thing they influenced was early Christian monasticism. When you look at the early Christian monasticism, it's very interesting because why did the early Egyptian monastics go out to the desert? Because urban Christian life, even before Constantine, was becoming too worldly, too accommodating to the general culture. The era of martyrdom was passing. And so they said, this, it does not work. This is not what Jesus had in mind. So they followed the example of Elijah and Elisha and the B'nai Hanavi'im, and went out into the desert to revitalize Christian religion. And they practiced the desert monastic disciplines of solitude, silence, and prayer. Any questions? Uh, yeah, and it's one of the basic problems He asked if this was not somehow a justification for Orthodox Judaism today. In a very real sense, one of the less attractive features of even modern orthodoxy is their sense that the generality of the Jewish people has apostatized. It's up to us to be the saving remnant. yeah. And, uh, you know, it ain't it, it going to fly at Temple Israel here in town. I got news for you. Yeah, we know yeah. but this is exactly part of the problem. And this is why you sometimes, this is the downside of this. Okay? You tend to get an us, them, sectarian point of view. Because for the Essenes at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were the children of light. Okay, we're the children of light. Well, who's included among the rubric of the children of darkness? All those other Jews out there. And they're going to be destroyed in the war. So, yeah, it does have a downside. Yeah. They grew out of the pietistic movement of the Hasidim, yes. However, unlike the Essenes, they believed in social engagement, okay? And one of the things they recognized is that there is an obligation to engage with the generality of Israel, and so the Pharisees were socially, culturally, religiously involved in the life of the people. Okay, other questions? Yeah. in Mm hmm. Right. Yes, absolutely. The thing to keep in mind, what he's saying is that, you know, you know clearly this you know, was not something that they experienced, the writer of this did not experience directly, such as the water remaining sweet to this day, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because essentially, before you write things down, they're going to be passed on orally. And one of the things that is very interesting in the Hebrew understanding of the canon of Hebrew scriptures and the Jewish understanding, first and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings are called the Neviim Rishonim, the earlier prophets, because these are the prophets who didn't write down their own words. Unlike the latter prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, they did write down their own words. Or had their sec, you know, a secretary do it. So this stuff is passed on. Now, what you really have to do is, it's interesting, if you look at the latter part of Second Kings and talk about the Babylonian exile in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you see a new class of religious leaders arising in the Babylonian exile. Those are scribes, because what they realized is with the deportation to Babylon, you're in danger of losing the entire religious and cultural and spiritual heritage of the people. And so what do you do? You write it down. And that's when a lot of this material was composed. Any other comments, questions? Ba'al. I mean, is that word used today? Well, yeah, I mean, it is used to refer to one's husband. A Ba'al. Uh-huh. But it's not God. No. Okay. We have our final thing, the axe of the chariot. Enter at your own risk. Okay. Anybody got a guess as to what this rather unusual picture represents? What are we seeing a rather crude representation of here? What? I see three crosses. No, those are wheels within wheels with eyes in the wheels. Not revelation. We're talking about Israelite. Ezekiel, thank you. Who said Ezekiel? Very good. This is Ezekiel's vision of the chariot throne of God. Okay. the earliest form of Jewish mysticism, which was practiced already at the time of Jesus, was known as Maaseh Merkava, the Acts of the Chariot. And it was a set of mystical practices that enabled one to ascend through the heavens, whether in the body or out of the body, debated, in order to behold God on the chariot throne. Okay? This is a dangerous practice. And let me tell you how dangerous. Okay? I don't know why I didn't keep this called up here. This actually comes from after the time of Jesus. This is a famous Talmudic passage about the rabbis taught, four sages entered paradise. That is, entered the orchard, the garden of mystical vision. Rashi explains that they ascended to heaven by utilizing the divine name. That is, they achieved spiritual elevation through intense meditation on God's name. They were Ben-Azai, Ben-Zoma, Acher, literally that means the other one, that other one, because he became an apostate. His name is Elisha ben Avuya, And Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi, okay, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna skip that. Benazai gazed at the Divine Presence and died. It proved fatal to him. Benzoma gazed and lost his sanity. Acher cut down the plantings, that is, he became a heretic. Rabbi Akiva alone entered in peace and left in peace. So... You want to behold what Ezekiel beheld in his vision of the chariot throne of God? Chances are you've only got a one in four chance of survival. So for next week, we're going to look at the first chapter of Ezekiel. That's what I want you to read for next week. And let me tell you, if anybody ever wanted to try to capture that on film, I'm not sure that even... um, oh, what is that, uh... Spielberg? Spielberg could do it, yeah. He might be able to, okay?